This is Coder Radio, episode 455 for February 28th, 2022. Hello there, and welcome back to Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly talk show, taking a pragmatic look at the art and business of software development and the world of technology. My name is Chris, and joining us every single month, right there next to his microphone, it's our host, Mr. Dominic. Hello, Mike. What's up? Let's launch into Coder Radio. Woo! Right, you and I are both here with our launch keyboards. That's right. <laughs> I could hear you typing away to the chat room before we started. <laughs> they do make a certain ra- racket, don't they? <laughs> I love it, though. I love me the clacky keyboards. Tell you what. Well, we got quite a bit of feedback. We touch on these topics sometimes that seem to resonate with people. Some of them make sense, like burnout, career decisions. And then every now and then we talk about things like blue and green message bubbles or cold hands. Yes. <laughs> and then we just get all the feedback. Uh, so I just thought I'd just super quickly get through some of that. Staying warm at your desk. We got a few suggestions. A few people recommended heat lamps, like the ones for food, but for your hands. I love it. Or heated gloves seems smart. The bearded tech said concerning cold hands, one thing that isn't talked about enough is sometimes cold hands can be a symptom of carpal tunnel syndrome. My fiance had surgery on both her hands and now she feels cold and hot completely different than before. Uh, and then Tyler wrote in and mentioned that cold therapy also works a little more difficult than gloves, though. But the one that got the people stirred up last week was when you and I talked about Windows 11 accounts requiring a transition with yet another tier of Windows, now with Windows Pro, requiring uh, everyone sign up with an online Microsoft account. Used to be just like home, but now they're expanding that. And you and I had thoughts on that. Well, listener Mike R. wrote in, and he has written out a comprehensive workaround guide on GitHub. And I skimmed through it, and it essentially involves tricking the installer by not connecting to any networking. So don't join a Wi-Fi network, unplug it from Ethernet. And then when you get to a certain point in the installer, you can invoke a console and then following his guide in about five, 10 seconds, bypass the whole online account required thing. Assuming Microsoft leaves that little workaround open, but he's got a great guide. So there you go. Problem solved, Mike. (laughs) I love it. Yeah, I'm sure you'll be doing this from now on. I mean, you may have to. I may have to, actually. I'll put a link in the show notes. Apparently, listener Mike knows how to write up a guide because he has put together a hell of a guide for people getting the deck. He himself is a game dev. He's heading down to the Game Developers Conference, and he wanted to put together a guide for other developers who might want to target the platform. So we have that in the show notes, too. If you're just kind of interested in the Steam Deck, though, it's worth checking out. Like I said, Mike R. knows how to write a guide. I was to say, have you gotten your hands on a deck? No, I, I guess I must have been like an hour late. I ordered pretty soon after the news was live, but I was out and about. So I think I'm going to probably be in the next batch or so. Which I'm fine with. Yeah, I'm in like batch 17, so I'm screwed. But I don't really, I'm not in a rush. I figure, you know, if it's going to be out to developers now, then by the time I get it, there'll probably be some bug fixes and stuff. Things will have been polished. True. I'm pretty happy with the Oculus right now anyways, so I don't really need a new toy. <laughs> oh, we'll get there. Oh, we'll get there. Speaking of clearing the deck, how about this? Brace yourself. Listener Egon wrote in. Like Voldemort, he's back. He's back, and he said, recently you talked about listener Casey from Austria, who uh, has an issue. He says, I suggest that he teams up with me 
a fellow Austrian freelancer that is specializing in service and hosting solutions. And he thinks maybe doing some networking would be great. So if listener Casey is interested in talking to the listener Egon, email me. I'll, I'll make a little magic happen. But this is a special occurrence. And this is why actually Egon's email made it on air. You see, when Egon writes into the show, it's a special occasion. Our first email from Egon came into Coda Radio on Wednesday, September 22nd, 2012. Can you believe that? It was glorious. I mean, that's, uh, that's a while ago. September 26th. It was like our, our 12th episode or, or something like that. But my absolute favorite email from listener Egon so far, I mean, other than the times we got in trouble, has to be when he wrote in on September 22nd. Oh, God. 2014, obviously responding to something you said, although I've completely forgotten the context. And he writes, Dear Mike and Chris, Mike has falsely proclaimed the end of private nudes. I have come to the rescue of that achievement of civilization for the 20th century. This is how one can still accomplish private nudes. Step one, buy a device that can take pictures but is not attached to a phone or any network. We used to call these digital cameras. Step two, take the nudes as you prefer them. Step three, save the data on non-cloud storage, maybe a USB thumb drive. And step four, if you prefer to send the nudes to someone, put the storage card in an envelope. Love the show, Egon. (laughs) That never made it on air. But that is some solid advice right there. Still applicable, you know, from 2014. Still works in 2022. It, it, it does, depending on the level of malware the recipient's computer has on it. <laughs> that's going to copy that drive and upload it to wherever. But yes, coins to Egon. That is a lot of effort. That's true. Yeah. You know, he's he, he, the problem is, is you don't know what they're going to do on the other end that you're right, because it's more and more likely that they would just throw it into some sort of photo program that auto clouds them. Or like they'll open it and not realize they have like Dropbox running that just syncs everything. Right. Or Google drive or something crazy like that. I just appreciate a, that Egon's been writing in for so long and B that he clearly had given thought to that process. I don't know why I could make some assumptions and then C felt like he was comfortable enough sharing it with us. And then it sits in our inbox since 2014 for eight years yes <laughs> isn't that amazing i mean there's just something special about that it's a coder radio miracle so if you'd like to have your email sit in our inbox for a while we do eventually get to them coder.show slash contact we'd actually we love getting your emails also something i've been meaning to do more is people are sending us boostograms boosts and i know that you probably don't have any, you don't know what i'm talking about do you no, no idea so there is a, a kind of a new generation of podcast apps, newpodcastapps.com. There's a movement. I should back up. There is a movement out there to keep podcasting decentralized and define a whole new set of features that's done in an open standard kind of way. And one of the great features of this new system is listeners, while listening to a podcast, can send a boost, which is kind of like equivalent to a YouTube super chat, but there's no middleman. There's no like PayPal that takes a cut or can stop a payment. It's really great. And people listening to this show, while they're listening, will say something and they'll send us a boost. Like Dave Jones sent us 500 sats. And he said, the only way to fully learn Rust is a brainstem tap that can just put the information directly into your brain. He says, that's the only way to learn all of Rust. And we must have said something about Rust. And so Dave sent that into the show while we were talking about it. I also happen to know that Dave works on a backend Rust application. <laughs> I love so, it. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Also, he had to note that uh, we talked about cumulative updates on last week's episode, 
and he said that they are the bane of a sysadmin's existence. He writes, I prefer periodic monolithic updates that bring things current so there's a recent baseline. There you go. So there you go. So if you want to send us a boost, you can get a new podcast app, and it's all in there, and send them into the show. They come in live, too. That's the other cool thing is as people are listening to them, they come into the show. So I have um, this front end that Dave Jones has written that sits and connects back to his Rust backend, and it pulls in the, the boost as people send them. So I can see when people are listening because it includes the, the episode that they're listening to, their name if they choose to include it, and a brief message if they choose to include it. And it comes in right there on that dashboard in real time. So it's pretty rad. And uh, we've talked a little bit more about it in Linux Unplugged if people are totally lost. But just go to newpodcastapps.com and figure it out. Linode.com slash coder. Go there to get $100 in 60-day credit on a new account. And go there to use the hosting and cloud provider that we use for everything we've built in the last two and a half years. And I just noticed some new rigs that we deployed recently have NVMe storage. This is brand new game-changing PCI fast storage that Linode has been rolling out. If you've got a project you want to test, something you want to learn, or something you want to put in production for a couple of people or millions of people, Linode has the right solution for you. Their systems are screaming fast, and they have 11 data centers around the world. They are their own ISP, and recently, they're now with Akamai and taking things to the next level. And I think you're going to love the interface. Nobody quite does it like Linode. It seems like at some point, all of the cloud providers decided to make these really kind of esoteric, unique dashboards that were part of their brand. Instead of just building something that is clean, elegant, and functional, which then would be a reflection of the brand, right? Which is exactly the route Linode went. I mean, that's the kind of experience they have, though. They know how to do this kind of stuff. Their command line client is extremely handy. And their website, when you log in, it gives you, you click on your Linode, it gives you the information you need right away to immediately start assessing the state of your system. Just brilliantly done, nice and simple, gives you what you need. You get in, you get action. It's great. Every time I spin up a Linode, I make sure I attach my SSH keys. I make sure it's part of the backup program. I can do all of that stuff in seconds. It makes provisioning infrastructure for us. Well, it's a foregone conclusion. That's how we're going to provision it. You know, it's just so great, so reliable. I look at what's out there. Nothing competes. Go try it out and really see for yourself. I mean, with $100, you can really form a solid opinion. I think that says something about Linode's confidence and how much you're going to like it. So go to linode.com slash coder. Get that $100 in 60-day credit on a new account, and you go there to support the show. Linode.com slash coder. Well, here's a bit of a spicy take for you. Everybody should just shut up and accept the fact that Win32 is the actual stable Linux user land ABI and deal with the consequences. Wow. Okay. This is a post that was inspired by a developer after the Steam Deck came out. Okay. Their argument is that Valve is pushing everyone to use Proton as a runtime. Even games that have Linux compatibility, Valve has pushed them that direction. And when you look at all of the distribution fragmentation, all of the toolkit fragmentation, the kernel fragmentation, the fact that the LSB really doesn't solve the problem, free desktop doesn't cover enough. You look at what it would take to ship a large-scale commercial application on Linux, and their argument is just release your Windows app on Proton. So like any sentence that begins with just do whatever, right? Is uh, Come on, man, just do it. Yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I, I will definitely say 
if you had just said games, I might be more like, yeah, of course, because I play lots of Windows games on Linux. I'm I am recently acquired Rogue Legacy Two, great sequel to the already great Rogue Legacy, and it is a Windows game, not even Mac support, and I play it on my pop machine. It's great via Proton, obviously. So that's cool, right? That's good. See, the problem with desktops is you're going to have to have controls and they're probably going to look like crap on the system in terms of desktop apps, right? Not, not just games, desktop programs. And while I'm sure it's possible to run your line of business application on this, I feel like the answer for this in most like line of business senses exists and that answer is called Electron. And it's fine. I mean, we're doing this whole podcast on on a web-based application, which could easily be wrapped in an Electron wrapper and distributed as a you know Doc Icon app. So I don't know that it would make a lot of sense for anybody to take any non-game application, specifically target Linux via Proton with it. That just seems kind of weird to me. I'll take the other side of this one then. I, I mean, as a Linux user, I, I kind of would hate to see this. I prefer desktop apps that look like they belong on my desktop. However, I also have to acknowledge that 20 years into this thing, Linux has failed as a quote-unquote collective to deliver essentially a stable desktop ABI that developers could be targeting in terms of toolkit and, and language and APIs and all of it. Not just the kernel ABI, but all of it. It just really hasn't materialized yet, despite some of the better efforts out there that come and go. And when I look at something like, say, Adobe After Effects, hmm, Adobe Premiere and Photoshop, or something of that complicated nature, I could see where it makes a lot of sense. I agree with your take. If it's a new app that's being created, if it's something that already exists as a web app, it just doesn't make sense to ship the Windows version when you could just ship the Electron version. But if it's something that's pre-existing, a large enterprise application or, or something like one of the Adobe Suite applications, I kind of think it makes a lot of sense because Valve is very dedicated to keeping that thing alive. They've hired developers. Is Valve going to chase incompatibilities with updates to Photoshop? No, but that's the beautiful thing. You just do what, you just do what Valve did. You hire a developer. I mean, Val, Valve hired a handful of really skilled developers to turn this thing into something they can ship a product on. Adobe could do the same. It's all open source, and they would build on top of what Valve has created for them. Adobe's not going to do that. You see where their investment already is. A lot, it, it, it's in web apps, right? Yeah, there's just no reason for them to do it, right? The only reason they would do it is if they had enough creative cloud users who were demanding it, but they don't even have a creative cloud client for Linux, as far as I know. And even then, they just hire a few more TypeScript developers and go to town in the, in the web <laughs> yeah, version. Maybe. maybe. I mean, there's no good business case for this, because if you have a legacy Windows application... Unless it's a real easy, you know, pop it over to a Proton and it's fine. It's probably not going to be something you're really invested in doing. And the other side of that is, okay, then once you release it, you have to support it. And shops that have Win32 apps are, first of all, the, the world of Win32 apps, we're talking a lot of Battleship Gray line of business applications here. The, these folks are not like moving to Linux. And frankly, if they are, they're ju they just bought like VMware Workstation and run them on there, just like their users who use Mac run Parallels or something. This is, this is like a problem that's on the legacy end being solved by VMs or people just simply running Windows. And in the future, I mean, Electron, man, it's, 
you know, it's such a small percentage of non-game users that are needing Linux applications, especially if we're talking about stuff that's still Win32. That's you're automatically talking basically older, more mature applications in a business environment. So I, I don't know. It, yeah, is that possible? Sure, right? It's a, yeah, but it makes sense if there was a user demand, and I think that's the the core of your argument. Is there's really no there's no business case, there's no user demand for this, and for new applications being developed, you just wouldn't go this route where you're going to create a user base, or you maybe have a service a web-based service or software as a service, it just does, this doesn't make sense. While I could see maybe a handful of applications over the next 10 years take advantage of this really great wine stack that has been created here and the wine project is better, is healthier and better than ever, I could see some people doing that, but not at scale, not, not, not like Adobe, not anything massive like that. I think it is just a little... Um, bodacious, maybe windbaggy to come out and say, ah, just forget everything else and just go with the Windows ABI and then use it on top of Linux. Because the reality is, is that over time, the Linux desktop is getting more and more attractive. I know this is an old tune, but you, you know what? I look at what the GNOME desktop guys are doing, and gals, and I look at GTK4 and, and, and the stack that they're creating there, and it's starting to make a lot of sense to me. I can see what they're trying to build. Yeah, for sure. I mean, there are different customers for different things, right? And that, that's ultimately what it's going to come down to. Like your your line of business, you know, small to mid-tier company that's just doing LOB apps is probably almost all doing web apps now if they're doing new development. Yeah. Unless there's like some weird case where they're like tablet kiosks. Then there, there are like cases where it doesn't make sense where they have to integrate with some like machine or piece of hardware. But certainly using some of the new sexy stuff, particularly in KDE or some of the new GNOME stuff, you could have, I could see like someone trying to become the rogue amoeba or, or panic of the Linux world. It's just that's a tough road to hoe, but it's also tough on Mac these days anyway, so I don't know. Yeah, yeah, I suppose so. This is my life as a Linux user, is things get pretty good, and then I make some move where I'm out on the fringe all over again. And uh, I, I can definitely feel that happening with ARM and Linux. I mean, I have a lot more ARM Linux systems now. I have way too many Raspberry Pis. And on my M1 MacBook Max, I have two or three VMs, really two VMs that I use on the regular um, that are Linux, that are ARM Linux, and that I love. It's, it's exceptionally, exceptionally good, but it has even less application compatibility. And it is, I mean, I, there are, I think there are actually ways to run 64-bit wine apps on ARM Linux, but it's a hell of a journey and it's brutally slow. And it's funny just because I, I see today that a ThinkPad X13 was announced with a Snapdragon CPU in it and 165 hertz screen. And they're, and they're saying 25 hour battery life. They're saying 60% better performance to energy efficiency when compiling software than on x86, right? They're like making some really attractive claims, 2.3 pounds, kind of a new look too. Uh, they say battery life so long you can leave the charger at home, but the software experience is just not going to be great. It's not going to be good. And and I I mean, what do you figure, Mike? At best, this thing is probably this thing which doesn't even ship till May is probably going to clock somewhere between the MacBook Air M1 that shipped last year and the new MacBooks. Right? It's going to be. It's not even going to be like. It may not even be as fast as an M1 released a year ago. 
I think, and I think there are going to be so many caveats and edge cases where things you actually want to do as a Windows user are going to be a challenge. It's a whole different ecosystem, right? Microsoft has so many different ways to develop applications for their stuff that I'm not totally convinced that they could pull off a Rosetta too. And I don't, and to the, I don't think they're saying they can. There is 64-bit compatibility, but it's just nowhere as fast. How do you define performance on a fair benchmark where it's a native binary for the platform? Who cares? Because even on the Mac side of thing, almost nobody's running ARM applications. Well, you really can't tell for the most case. Yeah, you can't tell until you uh, lean your arm on the arrow key. It makes arrow noises. Uh, yeah, we'll see. I mean, and for me, I actually think the situation is better on the Linux desktop than it is on Windows, although I do not have a lot of comparison experience. So that's a full acknowledgement. But I am very impressed with there are multiple distros now where I can just download an ISO image like you would for any PC. And it's just the ARM ISO image. You install it. You really have no idea you're on ARM. There's lots of applications in the repo. Anything that's really f- free software and open source is available to install. It's You get to the proprietary apps, those places where maybe they offer an RPM or a DEB for download, you know, for their w- weird app. None of them, for the most part, have ARM builds. So that gets pretty bad, pretty sketch quick. It's going to be a hard row. The toe. Is that it? It's hard toe to is it a is a rowing that's happening that's hard? I never actually understood that analogy. Probably should have gone with something else. Datadog.com slash coder radio. Yeah, that's right. Datadog.com slash coder radio is where you go to get a free trial for two weeks and a Datadog t-shirt. Now, Datadog is a software as a service monitoring and security platform that enables full stack observability for developers. IT ops, security professionals, business teams, really anyone that's working in the cloud age now. Now, along with Datadog's 500 plus vendor backed integrations, you can correlate your metrics, your application logs, traces, security signals, anything from your infrastructure, your third party services, and you bring it all into a single pane of beautiful glass. And what I'm talking about is the dashboard. It's great. And these capabilities combined with their drag and drop dashboard. It's like next level stuff. And Datadog also on top of that offers machine learning based alerts to help teams troubleshoot and collaborate more effectively. Well, that's going to prevent downtime. It's going to enhance performance, reliability, and communication. This is serious stuff. It's really going to make an impact. So we've got an exclusive offer for Coder Radio listeners. Go sign up for a free two-week trial at datadog.com slash coder radio. It's datadog.com slash coder radio. When you go there, you get the two-week free trial and a Datadog t-shirt. <laughs> That's datadog.com slash Coder Radio. I don't think we got to talk about this a lot because I can tell what you want to talk about is your Oculus. I can tell. I know. You feel it. Yeah, yeah, I can feel it. But, you know, when you and I get something right, every now and then I'm compelled to just point it out a little bit because... Go ahead. The, we, I think we nailed that, that whole Activision, Blizzard, Microsoft acquisition, the whole vulture circling situation. So it looks like that, in my opinion controversial CEO, Bobby Cockkick or whatever his name was, Cocktick. I think it's Kodik. Okay, sure. He is going to get a nice, big, fat $15 million golden parachute payout. It looks like he just had like like had some benchmarks to achieve for like improving culture. And this is all coming from some SEC filings from Microsoft. It reveals in there that they figured out, you know, if he reaches these benchmarks, the Activision board agrees, he gets more of a payout. In fact, it's not just him. All the top execs are getting a larger payout as a result of the cleaning up of the culture. Okay, sure. 
translation, this is a payout. So uh, the CEO and the other top execs didn't dig their hooves in to stop the acquisition. They had to put that there was some metric to make it, you know, kosher. But that's yeah. Bobby Bobby Kotick wasn't leaving without a golden parachute. Anyway, <laughs> you know, it's you know, you, you the Wall Street Journal story came out three days later. Phil Spencer's like, "Hey, man, what's up?" It, I mean, it's so obvious what happened here. It's it's almost like, yeah, you want the guy to give up his company that he wants a significant stake in, and you know, if he really throws a fit, he could probably not be forced out, or at least maybe legally he could. But you know, these 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 boards of directors and CEOs are always usually fairly friendly. So I don't know, unless you can get like a Bill Atkins in there to cause trouble, but even then he'd be one board member and he'd have to like do a Bill Atkins, a hedge fund guy who likes to go on crusades when he, but sometimes he does. Sometimes he, he's the guy who tried to put a herbal life out of business, but this is like, I don't know. This dude was always going to get a lot of money from Microsoft and Microsoft is still going to make a ton of money just by buying them. So everybody wins except for the employees. I got numbers on that here in a second, but I also thought this was interesting. The chief creative officer of King that they brought over when Activision Blizzard acquired Candy Crush, he's quietly leaving, along with the president they brought over. Their reasons, both of them, they gave for their departure is to spend more time with family. Yes, because all the people who make it to that level in their career want to spend more time with their family. Gotcha. There's also an interesting little thing in this SEC filing. No more details other than this. An unnamed individual made a big play to acquire Blizzard. And the board gave it some some thought, but they slow walked the whole process, hoping Microsoft would finish up because their, quote, prior dealings, end quote, with that individual raised concerns about them leaking. No idea who this could be, but it sounds like there was somebody else bidding at the same time, but they they didn't trust them. So they they intentionally, quote, slow walked the process to give Microsoft time to get their bureaucratic act together. Yeah. And also, this is a pretty sweet deal for for the shareholders of Activision, granted what was very likely to be a huge problem for them. Right. And, you know, it's funny, like a Kotaku, like those kind of gaming sites are still covering some of the crap that went on over there. But I feel like the glow of the wonderfulness that is Satya Nadella and just like the Microsoft's like very good reputation on all this culture stuff has, it's kind of worked. Don't you, don't you feel that it's kind of like washed a lot of sins away, at least in terms of like, they're not getting attacked. Like I think if they didn't get bought by Microsoft, they would still be getting savaged in the press. Yeah. I think the, the two CEO transition from Gates to Balmer to Sache has helped with some of that too. Right. And, and, and right. And to be clear, they deserve all the crap they were getting for sure. There's <laughs> yeah. no, yeah. there's no like, this isn't, you know, Mike being anti woke. This is, in fact, it's a little sick that this dude is getting so much money, but if it there is, was yeah. no way you, you had to pay him off. There was no way that all these, they, they would pay them just to keep them quiet and just help smooth this thing over. Well, okay. So the transition, they can leave in six months and still get their money. That never happens that short. <laughs> talk to the poor instagram guys who suffered at facebook for you know it's as far as i know i have very limited experience but as far as i know based on what i've been told by lawyers and from what we've just observed it's usually two years it can be a year sometimes it's, it's usually at least a full year from the completion of the acquisition but if if the let's say if you if you're the acquirer and you think the personality perhaps or the behavior of the founders was and bobby kodak's kind of a founder because he like bought it out of bankruptcy is the problem then you might 
you know, I don't know. This, I feel like this was the worst kept secret in the whole industry. Isn't it funny? Okay, so according to the same filing with the SEC, long-term revenue estimates prepared in November indicate that Activision Blizzard expects a dramatic nearly $2.5 billion revenue increase in 2013. So Microsoft bought at the right time. Yeah, well, Diablo 4, Overwatch 2, and there is an unnamed uh, Warcraft property, isn't there? Oh, of course. Yeah, so. This is a very savvy move by Microsoft. I stand by my original assessment that this is really going to create the Disney of video games because they're not done. They're not going to just stop. They're not just like, okay, we got enough games now. <laughs> I, I, I sort of feel like, like as people are like drooling over like the 15 million that Kotick's getting, I, I kind of think Microsoft got a really sweet deal here. Long term, no doubt about it. No doubt about it. It's not just owning the properties. It's being able to license the streaming and all of that. This is going to pay. It's funny because now, I, you know, I have a PS5 and I have an Xbox S. S? The, the little one. I think it's S. Yeah. You know, the graphical difference is pretty significant. It's not huge, but like on certain games, you can definitely tell. And I'm like, well, although with the Xbox S, I don't really buy games anymore because I have Game Pass. And I will just wait until the game inevitably becomes a Microsoft property. I mean, uh, in- <laughs> yeah, it's like with Google, you wait till they kill a product with Microsoft. You just wait till they buy that product. Oh, is it time to mention Google Google Wave again? Ah, uh, there it is. There it is. Nicely done. I am not as inclined anymore to want to play like on my Switch because I had a really good gaming experience with the Oculus Quest. I'd never really gotten to the gaming. I was working on like the whole like virtual office angle. And then you're like, you got to go get this Vader game after you got your quest. It kicked my ass. (laughs) Yeah. I got to tell you, man, it's a totally different experience playing a first person shooter like that in VR. When Vader walked up to me for the first time, I legit felt like a little bit of intimidation. Like this guy's big. He's standing over me. His whole suit was very intimidating. He's not playing. He's not screwing around here. He's not playing at all. And I've never had that experience. Also, putting my ship into hyperdrive and then walking into the back to, like, configure some of the ship's systems, that's just a lot of fun. All right, ready? Knights of the Old Republic Oculus Edition. Okay. It's like a new version. Can you imagine it? I think It's better than you expected, huh? I'm blown away. I love it. Really? It, and it's funny because every member of my house, except for uh, the five-year-old, because five, has tried it, and we've all latched on to other things. For instance, I've been getting my ass handed to me by BDSM Anakin Skywalker. <laughs> okay. And uh, the teenager discovered Beat Saber, and my house has been full of Lady Gaga. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Supernatural, is that the fitness one? Uh, yeah, I think so. Yeah, there's a couple of workout ones I want to try. Yeah, the Mrs. Tabi has been playing that. And I just started building my office. Oh, okay, tell me. I'm trying to go for as goth as possible. But like, but like, not goth as in like black nail polish. Okay. Actual old school gothic. Like, I want my screen, and then you know, just to look like I'm in an old castle. Cool. Like, like Batman, the movie from like '89 or whatever. Yeah, I want the Michael Keaton Batman. Yeah, that's perfect. That's a cool aesthetic, huh? You know, okay. This, this, I, I have to say, is a little bit of like we have to eat some humble pie on this because I on all of this initially. Because it just seemed like, I think, I, I, I went, it's attached to Facebook, therefore I will never take it seriously, right? And I just kind of collapsed it down to that single variable. 
Did you struggle with the whole meta thing, connection to Facebook? Uh, I didn't like that you have to log in your Facebook account. That feels creepy in ways that I'm not sure that I completely understand yet. But then I immediately handed Facebook like $150 in apps I bought. So. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah, you get used to it pretty quick. And you don't have, it's not like you interface with it a lot. It's not like in your face about it. I also, I can't believe I'm going to say this. And it was actually my wife who pointed it out to me, ironically. She's like, you know, where an NFT would make sense? She's like, if you have that virtual office and you start decorating it, wouldn't it be nice if you could take that stuff to a different environment? And she's like, I, because I, she was looking at it from like having a meditation uh, zone. And she's like, I, I would like to be able to decorate it with art. Okay, I got the Oculus. I'm also reading a book called The Reality Plus, which everybody who listens to the show that reads should read because uh, I think my whole mind has just changed on this VR thing. Oh, really? Yeah, I think between this academic writing this book and me reading it and experiencing it for myself, you know, I have done more exercise by getting the shit kicked out of me by Anakin. True. And trying that supernatural boxing thing than I think I've like ever done since I was a kid doing martial arts. Yeah, I worked up a sweat doing the practice lightsaber thing where you fight those little bots from the Star Wars movie. That Those cheap bastards. Yeah, they're all over the place. They're like, boom, we're fast. Yeah, yeah, I worked up a sweat. <laughs> Definitely got to set your, your guard area or whatever they call that. Your, yeah. Yeah, the guardian zone or whatever. Because sometimes you might hit a wall and that can be painful. It's a compelling idea. And, you know, recently a crowdfunder launched called the Simula VR. This is a Linux box, a like 11th gen Intel x86 Linux box in the headset. And they're writing a Wayland based desktop environment where you can bring up all the screens. And their primary focus is really crisp, high resolution text, because I think that is an area where the Oculus Quest 2 right now suffers is I have to make my screens really big because the text is fuzzy. So I compensate by having huge screens. I happen to love huge screens, so it's not a huge compromise. And you can have unlimited huge screens. But I could really see the advantage of the entire computer being in that headset. Because then you just, wherever you're at, you pop that thing on and you have your entire private workspace. And no one can see your screen. It really is confidential. And you, you have state, right? Because that virtual state remains. All your screens, all your windows where you had all your notes, your chat windows, everything laid out exactly the same wherever you're at, anywhere in the world. That's pretty powerful. So should, should we even talk about the developer story? Because I've, I've been definitely looking at it. Yeah, you know, we got an email in from a listener. I think uh, he was asking kind of the same thing. A listener, Casey, says, thanks for answering my question about maintenance contracts recently. I have a question about what your thoughts are on the coding possibilities in VR. I picked up the Valve Index over Christmas and I'm really enjoying VR games, but I haven't tried virtual workspaces yet. I find the text a bit blurry and difficult to read in VR, but I find the advantages of having huge and multiple monitors very intriguing. Could you see yourself coding or working in a terminal in VR? So, yes, which I, I'm very shocked that it's actually what I think. But I feel like, so, so this is, okay, this is my concern. You know how it's like some old ladies make those fairy gardens? Oh, yeah. Yes, I used to live next to one. <laughs> well, so do I. That's the lady. She, and they're beautiful. The problem is every time it like rains, it's, she, she has to redo it. But because she keeps it outside. I worry that like the level of effort in making the perfect, like I'm bad enough with my desk, right? I tweet photos of 
when I change the most minuscule crap on my desk? Would that not be the same in the VR? And would I start buying NFTs? Right? Is this a rabbit hole? And what if I'm in a different kind of mood? Maybe today I want to work in like a, a koi, you know, like a Buddhist monk temple with a koi pond, which is like my my you know VS Code window floating in the air. But maybe sometimes I feel like I'm Batman. You know, it's 1989. Sometimes I want the log cabin, but I just recently decided to switch to the space station. Oh, are you really doing the space station? I kind of like it now. You know, it just feels like feels like a high level because you got that big window where you can see Earth. It just seems like, you know, this is where I could go to think big about stuff, maybe. This feels like it could become like some very unhealthy, we mentioned him every week now, William Gibson style stuff. <laughs> you know, I don't know, we'll trade NFTs, you know, we could have Coda Radio NFT swag for your virtual desk. <laughs> Instead of Clippy, you have a, a VR Jar Jar. We just have entire economies that are or that are propped up selling virtual goods. What could go wrong? Nothing, nothing. This feels healthy. No, I mean, we don't, I just don't take it there. You know, I feel like if you just take it for what it is now, it's just a new way to work that still feels like it's it's not 100% there yet. It's more casual. It's more consumption. It's more iPad than it is laptop at this point. But I, I could really see one, just literally one generation difference. Or if Apple comes out with something or the Simula VR headset. And listen, I'm going to tell you, I, I was very skeptical on Apple coming out with something. Tim, there's 30% here for you. You could get it. This is my thought, is it actually really works well with the App Store model. It, it's, it's kind of uh, perfect. And people are charging a premium for VR content because it does take more work. Only thing is Apple is so into the AR idea right now. Yeah, but there is overlay. By the way, a little pro tip, you can turn it on in your settings and then you can just double tap the side of your Oculus and it will turn on the AR cameras so you can see around your room, which is really neat Like in the, when the kids come running in. So I recommend that's in the settings for Guardian. And then it's just a like it's just a sensor they have in there. So you just tap it hard enough for the sensor to read it and then it flips on the AR cameras. And I think that's where Apple could really do a lot better job than Oculus cuz those cameras kind of suck. Yeah, they do. Where you could really see how Apple could put in just iPhone quality cameras with lidar and the Apple AR stuff that they already exist. You you, you could you could bring them together. It doesn't have to be just one or the other. You know what? I, it just like literally popped in my head. All the fitness plus stuff that Apple's doing and the fact that the watch is getting better and better uh, heart readings and oxygen readings. I could see that being, particularly for me, someone with a heart condition, like my ultimate fitness setup is an Apple VR where instead of boxing and Supernatural, which is now I think going to be a Facebook property or already is, you know, whatever their version, right? Or some, in fact, some developer could make like, you know, boxing class. Wow, Peloton is screwed. I know that is a way better to work out. It's way better. It's so much more fun to like blow stuff up and fight stuff to, for your workout. And just as an aside, Mark Zuckerberg was recently on the Lex Friedman podcast. And in there, Zuck talks about some of their ideas for software development in VR and also about how they'll casually be able to create VR environments for just regulars, you know, just sort of block building kind of stuff. He is of the opinion, it sounds like to me, that within a few years, he expects this is probably going to make the developers at Meta about 5% more effective on average for their daily job. But he feels like if you take that 5% and you multiply it across all of Meta's developers, that's a huge return and that immediately pays for the headset itself. And so he thinks it's that's the direction these things are going. And they have 
mandated that staff now use all these virtual workspace apps for their collaborative meetings like Horizon Workplaces and whatnot. So they're dogfooding everything they're putting out. That's part of their mandate now. So, so, so how, how, does the, how does it make you more productive? I think the number one thing is the interaction in meetings is way more natural. So, you know, you never really make eye contact in a video call. When you're in a Zoom call, you're either looking at their face, but the person on the other side then sees you looking down or you look in the camera. So you're looking in their eyes on the other side, but then you're looking at the camera and you can't see them. In VR, the headset can detect the position of your head and figure out when you're looking at somebody and it creates an eye contact. Additionally, the positional audio means that you can hear someone on your left and your right and you're, you hear where they're at in the room with you. And it also means you could even lean over and say, hey, you know, this guy is just going on forever. We should wrap this up and like you can in a real meeting. And the person on the other end of the room can't necessarily hear you. So there's that kind of stuff. Plus, you also see like right now, as I'm talking to you, I'm actually expressing quite a bit of this conversation with my hands, even though I'm sitting in a studio by myself. And all of that comes through as well. Mm, sure. Also, it's lower latency. So there's that factor as well, because you're not sending an H.264 video stream and an AAC audio. You're just sending vector information and then it's being rendered locally on your machine. And then there's a there's just the you know audio to go along with that. But you don't actually have to perfectly nail that audio timing so you can actually be a little more creative with that. And so it actually produces a lower latency experience. So it makes the meetings more natural. You don't have that issue that you have on VoIP calls or Zoom calls now where people can't quite tell if you're done talking or just pausing because the latency makes it hard to guess the gap when you should jump in or not. That kind of stuff goes away. Damn, I could totally see that. I know, and the thing is, I know a lot of people listening probably think we're crazy, but you know, here we were, two cynical skeptics, like just two, three weeks ago. <laughs> uh, you know, I, and I, I admit, my big blocker was the Facebook connection. I just didn't take it seriously. But now that, like you, now that I've tried this, I'm ninety percent sure Apple's going to release a device like this. And I could see Apple doing some crazy stuff where they like call Adobe and make a deal that like the Mac, Mac OS iOS and like Apple VR OS, whatever it's going to be, you know, you can be working on your, your InDesign file or hell, we might see a, like a flourishing of CAD software on Mac because then, okay, you can go into the Apple VR and like do a meeting with it and have a, the actual like item you're building right there. I am so torn. I've been talking to Wes about it since like Saturday or Friday. I am so torn on the Simula V1. So the base price to pre-order and you can do 50% up front or you can do it all up front. But the base price for this Simula VR Linux computer is $2,700 and their limited availability one is five grand. I, I, that's, I know. I know. Says the guy sitting in front of a $5,000 iMac pro that will be obsolete in two months, but yeah, it is an entire computer, right? It's not just a VR headset. It is an entire modern 11th gen Intel Linux compatible computer. And the computer component is actually detachable from the headset. So there's that element of it. So it's not like it's a crazy, crazy investment. And they're really upfront about the cost. They explain, you know, the screen and the stuff that's causing the price. And I feel like a Linux enthusiast who's now starting to become a VR enthusiast, this feels like the perfect crossover. But I worry, having experienced the Oculus, my gut tells me the VR headset is more like a phone 
than it is like a computer. And so it means you need an app store and you need an ecosystem and you need developers that are pushing to get their content on here. And this isn't going to have any of that. It's just going to have a really good working environment and it's going to be able to bring in some floating screens, which is going to be awesome. But it feels like only a third of what the VR headset should do. And so when you're when you're looking at nearly twenty seven hundred dollars, I don't know. That's really tricky. I would be, and I know people are going to like burn us in the comments on this, but I would be so like now is probably not the time to start a big new VR project, especially if you're an independent developer. One, there's something I want to mention. Facebook has done a good job with the SDKs. There's like the native end. There's the native SDK. There's they have great. It looks like really good Unity support. Maybe maybe that's Unity doing a good job. And they have Unreal Engine support and, if, and WebRx, which I don't know much about. If Apple's really going to release something in, in the next, let's say, 10 months, I just feel like that will be an automatic win unless Apple stupidly makes it like four grand. Oh, they'll make it expensive. But now that I've seen this thing sitting at 2700 it's going to seem like a deal. Because it probably will be two grand like uh, German or whoever said it was going to be. This is going to be another thing that's also going to leave a bunch of people behind. How do you mean leave them behind? It's just too expensive. Well, there is that. Although I would imagine the price will come down, right? You can get a, you can find an Oculus for $300, $350 used. So I imagine the prices will come down over time and they'll hold, they'll have probably multiple editions where they keep one that they've released years ago and like they do, like they do with the phones. So I think the pricing thing will solve itself initially after, after the initial kind of ecosystem gets established. But I just mean, there's a lot of technology coming that people are just not getting on board with anymore. My dad never bothered with social media. I say good move, right? Never has created any account on any social media platform ever. Never has checked a social media platform. And that's, that's fine. Um, actually, I, I used to work with a guy who didn't get a cell phone. You know what I'm saying? It's just like each major wave, there's people who just decide not to jump on. It feels like cryptocurrency is definitely one of those, at least Bitcoin. And it seems like VR is one of those things. It's like, there's just going to be some people that are just going to nope out. Like, ah, this is a, this is a scam or this isn't going anywhere. And so it's weird. It feels like there's more and more resistance than ever these days. Yeah. But you know, once something really new comes out, I think it's going to, there's going to be another cycle of hotness. Now granted pricing is going to be a thing. And I think that's why Facebook's the new, okay. The Oculus was 300 bucks, right? So if Apple, Apple will as always have their high end, like you're, like you were saying, and German saying, but I don't know. I could see it. Poor HoloLens. You know, it's funny. Now what Apple's going to start doing is they're going to start slowly ratcheting up the price of apps. If they release a headset, apps are going to be $24.99. I mean, even mobile apps, good mobile apps, are expensive to develop these days because the consumer expectation is so high. But just the level of graphical assets you need for even any like relatively simple VR experience... And you probably are going to want some sort of way to bring in folks as NFT products. And I can't believe I'm on board with NFTs now. But these are big undertakings. These are bet the company moves for, I think, most smallish indie developers. Unless, you know, unless you're doing some like trivial, not trivial, but like you're not, you know what I mean? You're doing something that's not that complicated. But to have a really good virtual experience, I can't even imagine just the graphical assets alone what the cost is going to look like. There could be whole design firms opened up. Design, if you're a very skilled 3D designer, you might consider design consultancy 
just supplying developers and other companies effectively NFTs, right? It's just the assets for the NFTs. Well, and if these things took off, if this became a legitimate ecosystem in a decade, would we start looking at companies like Unreal as one of the premier IDE developers, perhaps? Because you could see how that could be their wheelhouse. I think this is the best thing that's happened to Unity since iOS. Yeah, you know, <laughs> Unity's having a resurgence. <laughs> Wild. What a trip we just both had with this thing. I think, you know, my advice would be, unless you like to tinker with stuff early days, you could hold off. This isn't necessarily a an endorsement to go out and buy one, unless you want to just play with this stuff and kind of see what we're talking about and experience it at, you know, the ground level. I think one revision away and it's time to buy. Well, I, I got to tell you, if you're, if you're, you know, young, like I was when iOS came out and you can like shoot your shot and you don't have, you know, a lot to lose, I would probably say to hell with mobile and take a look at this stuff. Start small, but you'll be early. And it's got that hungry consumer thing going. People have their new hot device and they want to grab apps for it. I'm spending money on the Oculus apps like a drunk sailor, right? It's, I know it sucks. It sucks. <laughs> and the apps are pricey. Yeah, I wasn't really, I didn't really budget that in, <laughs> but it's, I'm slowing down now. But yeah, I definitely, I went shopping, you know, I, you get this device, you got to load it up with apps and, and, you know, hey, they're cheaper than a Switch game. I bought Resident Evil 4 for the fourth time. All right, eighth time. But yeah. Well, I've got to go fight Darth Vader, so we should probably wrap it up there. Is there anywhere you'd like to send folks? Uh, go to Alice.dev and uh, help fund my VR habit. Right, right, right. Why not join us on Matrix? There's a Coda Radio feedback room and a Coda Radio general chat on Matrix.org. And of course, our server is calling.jupiterbroadcasting.com. Colony.jupiterbroadcasting.com. We love your feedback. That's at coder.show slash contact. Gives us lots to talk about. It's a big part of the show, so we love hearing from you. You can also find links to what we talked about today over there. That's at coder.show slash 455. And last but not least, you're welcome to join us on a Monday at noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern. Thanks so much for joining us. See you right back here next week.